You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. I'm also blessed to be right here, right now. Nothing more I'd rather do than talk to you about Acts chapter 14. So, Father, bless your word to us this morning. Thank you for the good things that you're doing, Lord, right here in our city and all over the world. But, Jesus, we believe that you want to speak to us right now, so we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. And I don't mean to frighten you this morning, but we are going to... I'll do my very best to make our way through the entire chapter. Lengthwise, it's a little bit tough because this is one of those uh, chapters that I felt like splitting it up into two would have been too short for two messages, but I didn't want to go into chapter 15 because that starts a whole other thing. So I, I really think that we can get through this together and really focus in because there's really a coherent theme that you'll notice throughout pretty much the whole chapter. So let's just jump into it. Verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both the Jews and of the Greeks believed. Now, it says in Iconium, they were coming from the city of Antioch. We're going to have a lot of maps today because Paul does a lot of traveling here in this missionary journey. So they come from the city of Antioch there in a region called Pisidia. They came from Antioch over to a place called Iconium. Why did they come? Well, because they were forcibly ejected from the city of Antioch. There's basically such a, a mob, such a, I, probably exaggerating a little bit to call it a riot, but something close to that. There was an angry group of people who drove them out of the city and who were very happy to see them gone. So after they left Antioch, where did they go? They went over to Iconium, and there, verse 1 tells us, they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. I find this fascinating because the the leaders of the synagogue in Antioch had just expelled Paul and Barnabas from that city. Yet when they came to Iconium, they began their evangelistic efforts all over again by going to the synagogue right away. It was still a good way to start. So that's where they went. They went to Iconium. They went to the city and they began preaching in the synagogue. And look at the result. Verse one tells you. That they so spoke that a great multitude of both the Jews and the Greeks believed. This is beautifully successful, isn't it? Now please notice, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, there is going to arise shortly opposition from some of the Jewish leaders in Iconium. But Paul wants us to know very clearly, excuse me, Luke wants us to know. That this wasn't universal. There were many Jews who believed. There were many Gentiles or Greeks who believed. They believed this message that Paul preached, that salvation is in Jesus, and we appropriate it by our belief. And so many believed there in Iconium. But look at what happens next. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lysonia and to the surrounding region. Isn't that very interesting? Verse 2, what happens? 
First of all, unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now, again, Luke makes it very clear that it was not all the Jews of the city of Iconium who were against them. Many of the Jews in Iconium received the message and they believed on Jesus as their Messiah. Yet some not only rejected the message, but they also stirred up other people to reject the message. And not only to reject the message, but to reject the messengers. By the way, that's always a vector strategy, right? If you can discredit the messenger... In a lot of people's minds, it discredits the message. Now, it shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, in theory, we should be able to separate the message from the messenger. But practically speaking, we find this almost impossible, do we not? If you discredit the messenger, oftentimes you've discredited the message. And so this wasn't just attacks against the message that Paul and Barnabas preached, but it was also attacks against them personally. But I love, if you look at that in verse 2, now look at what happens in verse 3, and it's almost a contradiction. I'm blown away by verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time. (laughs) Yeah, you get that, don't you? They were being attacked, opposed. It was really hot. It was really heavy. It was really difficult. Therefore, they stayed there as long as they possibly could. I find that wonderful. They stayed as long as they could, despite the opposition, leaving only when it was absolutely necessary. Friends, I think that really, really shows us something interesting, that Paul and Barnabas were men of real perseverance, right? They did not bug out of Iconium at the first hint of opposition, even though they had been forcibly ejected from Antioch just a few days before. No, they said, we're going to stay here as long as we possibly can. We're going to, now why? Why wouldn't they just leave? Why couldn't they say, listen, we see the handwriting on the wall. Let's go to another place. Well, I, I think part of it was just because of the leading of the Holy Spirit telling them to say, but, but I'll go even further. I think another part of it was this. They thought, listen, if it's so difficult to be a follower of Jesus here in Iconium, then we want to stay as long as we possibly can and pour into these young Christians so that they can be equipped to follow him, right? They recognized that when they left Iconium, they'd be leaving behind believers who needed to be as strong as possible so that they could weather the storms that they would face. Therefore, they said, even though the opposition is here, we are going to stay as long as possible. And friends, this really shows us the need to persevere. And can I say this? The need to equip other people to persevere. I wonder about that. Do you ever think about that in your own life? Oftentimes we don't. We feel like we're hanging on for dear life and you're so happy that you've made it through another week and you sort of use Sunday mornings as a marking time, right? You sit down here in one of our benches and you go, whew, I made it through another week. Okay, now we can start another one. You're just so happy to survive week to week. And God bless you if you are surviving week to week. But... Oftentimes we're so in the midst of that kind of thinking that we don't stop and think, what can I do to help somebody else endure? And I really see this from Paul and Barnabas, right? They're not so focused on saving their own skins that they're going to fail to pour into other people as much as they really can. Now, I don't say that in a moment to to diminish what you're going through. And I can imagine it's difficult and I can imagine it's challenging for you. But you know what? I, I think perhaps the best thing you can do to help you make it through Find some other hurting person who needs help making it through. Love them, encourage them in the name of Jesus. That's what Paul and Barnabas were doing right here. I just love that phrase in verse 3. Therefore, they stayed a long time, but continue on in verse 3. Speaking boldly in the Lord. 
Despite all the opposition, Paul and Barnabas continued to preach boldly. They bore witness of the word of his grace and they touched others with the power of Jesus. But look at the response, verses 5 through 8. A violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them. And they became aware of it and they fled. Now, I think that's another sort of wise thing about facing this kind of difficulty that they face, right? Here they were having to persevere in the midst of very difficult times. Yet, when it was time to go, they left. Would have it been really strange if we would read here that Paul and Barnabas became martyrs in Iconium? And that's the end of the book of Acts right there. I mean, theoretically, it could have happened, right? If they would have said, no, we're never moving. But listen, there's a time to stay and to stay as long as you can. But friends, there's also a time to go, right? There's also a time to say, okay, we're done here. Now it's time to move on to whatever God has for us next. And Paul and Barnabas, they had the wisdom, they had the grace to receive that from the Lord and say, okay, now is the time to go. There's no shame in going. We're not cowards. We're not failures. We've stayed as long as we could, but now it's time to go. And they went on. They went on to a place called Lystra, some 20 miles away, very short distance from Iconium, and then later on to Derby. But please understand Their perseverance under the difficulty in Iconium, it didn't mean that it was time for them to become martyrs. Not by any means. They had to continue on the work, and this is exactly what they did. So, verse 7, And they were preaching the gospel there. There means in Lystra. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had the faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. This is fantastic. They get to Lystra. Paul's preaching. By the way, that's what it says right there in verse 7. They were preaching the gospel there. I think it's very important for us to understand this in perspective. Paul, excuse me, God used Paul and Barnabas to work amazing miracles. Did they not? I mean, don't we read of one right in front of our eyes right here? Amazing miracles. Yet, they did not primarily see themselves as miracle workers, not in any way. They primarily saw themselves as preachers of the gospel. Now, as they went out doing the work of preaching the gospel, God did miraculous things all around them, and it was wonderful. And God used such miraculous things. But make no mistake about it, They were there, verse 7, they were preaching the gospel there. And then, verse 9, this man heard Paul speaking. Paul saw in some way, I don't know how it was, just on the man's countenance, maybe the expression of his face, whatever it was, this man has the faith to be healed using discernment and the gift of faith. Paul says, you're going to be healed right now. Stand up straight on your feet. The man does. And I love what it says there in verse 10. And he leaped and walked. Can't you just picture that in your mind? This man who had been lame for so long, he's just jumping. He's excited. His legs are filled with strength when before they had been paralyzed. It was just amazing. And if you think that's amazing, look at what happens next. Verse 11. This is one of the funniest things in the book of Acts. Verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycanian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the chief priest or the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. I would say that this miracle of healing the man made a big impression on them, don't you? 
And they said, oh, this is wonderful. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas must be gods. Now, you and I read that and we go, what are they, crazy? How could they think that Paul and Barnabas were gods? Well, it's very interesting that in that very city of Lystra, there were some old legends. And all this is confirmed by ancient writings and archaeology and such. There were ancient legends that said this, that in the city of Lystra, generations before, that the gods came in the appearance of men. Two gods, Zeus and Hermes, just like they called Paul and Barnabas. Zeus and Hermes came in the likeness of men to the city of Lystra. And you know what? Nobody gave them any hospitality. Nobody said, hey, come on in, stay at our house. Oh, we'll take care of you. Nobody gave them any hospitality except for one elderly couple. So you know what Zeus and Hermes did? They wiped out the whole city except for the one elderly couple. That was a legend that went around in the city of Lystra. So when they thought Zeus and Hermes might be among them again, they said, this time we're rolling out the red carpet. And can you imagine what it was like for Paul and Barnabas? Everybody's excited because the man's healed. He's jumping around. It's just wonderful. And then all of a sudden, now they can't understand because it's being spoken in the local dialect, right? And they speak Greek and Hebrew, but Paul and Barnabas don't speak the local dialect. And and people are jabbering around. They don't know what they're saying, but everybody seems so happy and excited. And they're being so nice to them as well, right? Isn't it wonderful? And all of a sudden you see they're bringing down a bull, you know, and there are flowers and dancing. Isn't it wonderful? And then pretty soon they figure out, They think we're gods and they're going to sacrifice a bull to us. Now, it's interesting how they regarded Paul as Hermes and uh, Barnabas as Zeus. Uh, Hermes was known as the messenger of the gods. And so it made sense to the Lystran people that Paul, the more talkative one, was Hermes. And maybe Barnabas had sort of a more dignified air about him. I don't know. Maybe he just was better looking than Paul. I don't know. Okay, he's Zeus and Paul is Hermes and they ordained, they, they adored them, they praised them in the Lyconian language. But when they saw that priest coming down with the bull ready for sacrifice, they said, you know what? They're not just being nice to us as guests. This is getting really weird. By the way, I, I just I just have to say something. It just, I'll just make a very, very brief aside. Whenever a man or a woman is being used of God, and would you not argue that Paul and Barnabas were being greatly used of God here? Whenever a man or a woman is being greatly used of God, often there will be the temptation or the challenge brought to them of some kind of idol worship, right? People will want to lift them up to a place where they don't belong. And sometimes the people lifted up want to be lifted up to a place they don't belong. Oh, just never should it be so. Never should it be so. The, the people being raised up should never want to be idols. And the people in the Christian community should resist the temptation to lift up idols, which I should say is a very strong temptation in our modern culture, is it not? In the celebrity culture in which we live, there's almost this irresistible pull to exalt men and women as celebrities. But friends, fight against it with all you have. We don't need Christian celebrities. We really don't. We need godly men and women who want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all their hearts. And so the less celebrity we can have and the more just strong, glorious discipleship, the better. Because you see, it didn't turn out good for Paul and Barnabas. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, 
They tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Isn't that a vivid scene? The first thing they did, verse 14 tells us that they tore their clothes. They did this for two reasons. First of all, to show everybody right underneath they were flesh and blood human beings, right? But secondly, they did it because that was a typical Jewish reaction to blasphemy. They would say, man, this is blasphemy for you to regard us as gods. We're not heroes. We're not celebrities. We're just people here preaching the gospel to you. That The greatness is not in us. The greatness is in the God whom we serve. So they tore their clothes. And then I love what it says in verse 15. They told them that they should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all things in them. Isn't that beautiful? Here they are, these bunch of pagan people in the midst of worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They're in an idolatrous way. And Paul and Barnabas, they had the guts to look at these people and to say it to them. And I imagine they had to say it pretty loud, right? But I'm, in my voice, they're, they're, they're shouting, not in a mean way, but just in a way to make their voice heard. And they're telling them with all they can, listen, turn from this. This is pagan idolatry that you have to leave behind. And I love how he phrases it there in verse 15. Did you catch it? Turn from these useless things to the living God. Friends, that's a pretty simple explanation of what repentance and faith is all about, right? Turning from useless things, that's repentance, to the living God, that's faith. Now, some people think they can do both, right? I'll keep my focus on these useless things, but I'll turn my faith towards God. No, you can't do it. You you. Faith can pretty much just face one direction, right? We haven't really, I know some of you think you have killer peripheral vision and all that, but pretty much you just, you know, you're just straight ahead, right? And, and if you're going to turn away from one thing, you can't turn to something unless you turn away from something else. And that's what Paul was telling them, both things. Turn away from these useless things and turn to the living God. But with all of that, verse 18 says, with these things they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Even with all that, they had an extremely difficult time challenging the wrong conceptions that these Lystrians had. So you would think that everything would be great, right? Do you think Paul and Barnes would have a hard time getting a room to stay in in Lystra that night? No, these guys, they might be Zeus and Hermes. You know, we'll give them a great, we'll treat them great. Well, no, it didn't even work out that way. Look at verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Hello? Are you serious? This same crowd that adored him, that wanted to sacrifice to him as a god, just a short time later, under the influence of these religious leaders from Antioch and Iconium, they're literally throwing rocks at Paul to kill him. Isn't that amazing? 
Look at what it says one more time. It says, verse 19, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came. Now, by the way, it doesn't surprise me that people from Iconium came from Lystra to do it. That's a walk of maybe 20 miles, right? You could do that. Do you realize that these people who came from Antioch came well more than 100 miles to continue their persecution of Paul? That's dedicated persecution, isn't it? I mean, you've got to give them points for effort at least. They came all the way from Antioch, all the way to Lystra to carry this on. And then what does it say in verse 19? They persuaded the multitudes. They incited the people against Paul and Barnabas, and they instigated the stoning of Paul. And those rocks were thrown by some of the same people who wanted to worship them just a few hours before. And friends, listen, this really exposes why it is dangerous for any spiritual leader to cultivate or to allow a kind of hero worship. Because I'll tell you what, the same people who give you that honor are going to feel terribly betrayed when their leader is shown to be human. Because you know what? He is. She is. It's just the way it is. And so if you understand that from the beginning and refuse the temptation for a hero worship, you, you can handle it, right? But if you get sucked into the spirit of our age and the celebrity culture and all of that, then listen, when your leader is shown to be some very human person, which he or she is, then then you're going to be crushed in a way you just shouldn't be. But then notice again, verse 19, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Paul was miraculously preserved here. And some people think that he was actually killed and raised to life again. Because, listen, stoning was usually a pretty reliable form of execution, right? I just There weren't many misfires when it came to stoning a person to death. It usually worked. So there's some people. But you know what? i got to say, I really respect Luke in writing the book of Acts this way. Luke shows how very measured he is. Does Luke say that Paul died and rose from the dead here? No, he doesn't say that. Why? Because Luke didn't know, right? Maybe he did. Maybe Paul didn't even know, right? But he's being very measured in his words. He doesn't want to exaggerate. He's saying, listen, all I can tell you is this. They thought he was dead. They left him for dead. But then he got up. And what did he do? Verse 20, the very beginning part of the verse, he rose up and went to the city. Paul, are you crazy? Was this too much of a concussion from the the rocks being thrown at you? No, I don't think so. When Paul revived... He did not flee the city that stoned him. Rather, he went immediately back into it. He was driven out of Antioch. He was driven out of Iconium. But but listen, he was determined, I'm going to leave Lystra on my own terms. And so what does he do? I'm going to pick it up right here in the middle of verse 20. It says, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. You see what they did? In other words, Paul says, okay, listen, I understand I'm not welcome here in Lystra. It's not a good idea for me to stay. But you know what? I'm not going to get run out of town. I'm going to go back in that city and I'm going to spend the night there. And then in the morning we'll leave because I'm not going to get run out as if I'm a man filled with fear. I'm going to show these early Christians that we can persevere through our difficulties. And that's exactly what they did. Now, notice what it says there in verse 21. It says, they departed with Barnabas to Derby, And then in verse 21, again, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. I just want to give a brief point of emphasis here. 
Paul and Barnabas were not just about making converts, but about making disciples. Now, a a person can be a convert to Christianity in a moment. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's great. You, You might have walked into this room today an atheist. You can walk out of here believing in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I have no interest in doing that. Well, I hope God will change your mind on that. But God's, you know, at work on you. That's fine with me. But listen, you can be a convert in a moment. But what does discipleship take? Discipleship is a lifetime, isn't it? Becoming a learner of Jesus, following him in a deeper, more intimate, less reserved way, more surrendered way, day by day, walking after him. Yes, not just converts, but disciples. And in the course of doing this, I'll pick it up here in the middle of verse 21. It says, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you can notice it on the map, but you see there's a long, white, squiggly line, right? Because the middle of verse 21 describes just that. They went all the way to Derby, and then they came back from Derby to Lystra, from Lystra to Iconium, to Iconium to Antioch. Why? They went back to the places where they had already founded community of Christians, and they went back there to strengthen those Christians. This, again, is another reflection of Paul and Barnabas' passion to make not only converts but disciples, right? Now, they might have said this. They might have said, forget those places where we've already left the community of Christians. They're already going. Let's just preach the gospel in new places. And they did preach gospel in new places. But friends, they also had a passion to go back to the churches they had already founded and to strengthen them the very best they could. And that's exactly what it says in verse 22. Did you notice that? It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Hey, you've made a good start. Now continue in the faith. We want to pour strength in your soul. Friends, that's a passion of mine right here. There's so many of you made a wonderful start in your walk with God. And this is great. But I want to strengthen your soul to continue on walking. Others of you, and I don't say this in a condemning way at all. I'm just trying to be very honest and and just, well, just pour it out before. Many of you, you've walked with God a long time. But you know what? You basically stalled out in your Christian life. You look at the calendar. You look at the number of years. You say, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Oh, have you? Maybe you've been a Christian for five years, four times over. You know, maybe it hasn't gone much beyond that. Well, just allow God's working to strengthen your soul, to encourage you in the faith, to take you deeper. Many, many Christians need a strengthening in their souls. Many need exhorting to continue in the faith. I may very well be speaking to somebody, you felt like giving up. Let me just exhort you right now. You continue in the faith. Don't you give up. Not after this message this morning. Give up next some other week. Not this week. (laughs) This is what the text is saying. Can't you see it? It's the words on the page right there. Telling them you should exhort yourself to continue in the faith. It's no small thing to walk with the Lord year after year, trial after trial. It takes a strong faith. It takes an encouraged soul. And this is what God wants to pour into you. And then verse 22. Do, Do you like to mark up your Bible? Do you like to underline things? There's many of you, you are going to refuse to underline this verse, verse 22. You look, you say, there is no way I'm underlining this. Well, let me challenge you with it. Verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Oh, say, no, no, that's not in my Bible. 
You're hoping that I can pull a rabbit out of a Greek hat, right? And tell you that, that it doesn't really say what it says there in the original Greek. You know what this means in the original Greek? Let me give you a more original Greek rendering of this. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That's what it is, folks. And I don't mean to pour a bucket of cold water on you. I mean to increase your joy. Knowing this, understand that God is with us in the midst of every one of those tribulations. It gives us hope. It gives us encouragement. You see, and I love that Paul and Barnabas preaches to them. You know why? Because Paul and Barnabas lived this. They knew this, right? They weren't speaking from some ivory tower of comfort and pleasure where everything had been nice in their life. But they say, we know it's through many tribulations because we see it at work in our own lives. That's exactly what they did. So continuing on now, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They went around, they appointed elders, they knew that these churches, they were weeks old, these Christian communities, but they still knew they needed some kind of leadership structure. Might I say, this is not the ideal way to appoint elders, right? Can you imagine what it was like? You go to Iconium, there's the Christian community. Well, who's going to be the elders? Well, um, you, you're... You come from the Jewish synagogue, you really know the Hebrew scriptures. And you know what? You've been a Christian for three weeks. I think you're a more qualified person than this person who's been a Christian for one week. Why don't you be our elder? Now, like, is that ideal? No, it's not ideal. But listen, I think Paul and Barnabas, in this respect, were very practical men, right? They did the very best they could. They didn't have qualified pastors. They didn't have trained elders. They didn't have people with a lot of experience. If they could, they'd get the most experienced and skilled people they could. And what they did, they just listened to the Holy Spirit, and they did the very best they could under the circumstances. Most pointedly, verse 23, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, at the end of it all, they could only trust God's ability to keep these churches healthy, having commended them to the Lord. It was in the Lord they had believed. They were not saved by believing in Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas brought a message about the Lord they should believe, but Paul and Barnabas were not the focus of their faith, but rather it was the Lord on whom they believed. They understood that the church belongs to Jesus. Now coming up, verse 24. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had completed. Did you see that in verse 24? Here again, we have the map. They go down from Antioch to Pisidia. Pisidia is a region. They make their way through the region of Pamphylia. And then they come to the city of Perga, which is close to the course, uh, coast, I should say. And then they go over to Atalia. And from Atalia, they sail back all the way to Antioch, returning home to their home congregation. And the first missionary journey, which they didn't know was the first missionary journey. They thought it might have been the last missionary journey as well. The first missionary journey was over, and I love what it says right there in verse 26, for the work which they had completed. Isn't it a great sense of satisfaction when you've done what God has called you to do? No, God's given you a task to do. I should be a part of this ministry. I should be part of this project. I should be part of this thing, reaching the city, this part, reaching the world. There's some aspect, something that God wants me to do. You put your focus on it, and the work is completed. That doesn't mean that God's done with you when you're done with that work, right? God wasn't done with Paul and Barnabas, but they had completed that particular work. This would be merely the first of several missionary journeys. So now verse 27, this is sort of the happily ever after. 
Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Isn't that great? First of all, verse 27, they reported all that God had done with them and that they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Do you remember how this whole missionary journey began? There was the congregation there in Antioch praying, ministering to the Lord, seeking Him with all their might. And then what does the Holy Spirit say? The Holy Spirit says, I want you to separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Send them out among the nations to reach the world. So they did that and they sent them out. And now they come back many months. I don't know if it was a year. I don't know how long this whole thing took, but at least several months. They finally come back to their home congregation in Antioch and they report, let us tell you what God did. And you've heard some of those great mission team reports, right? Let us say some of the amazing things that God did. And they told him about these people converted and this person healed and this mob stoning me and all the other things that they talked about, right? But most importantly, what did they say? Look at it in verse 27. And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, please remember, that congregation in Antioch was one of the first genuinely mixed congregations of Jews and Gentiles. And what it assured them of is, What God was doing there in Antioch, He was doing all over the world through the preaching of the gospel. That was super encouraging that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And friends, I I don't know about you, but when you think about in that whole missionary journey, that trip was a great success, was it not? But sure filled with a lot of problems. You you say, Paul, was your missionary journey successful? Yes, it was successful. Did you have a lot of problems? Yeah, let me tell you about them. You know, the traveling was really difficult. Uh, We had this great confrontation with a guy named Elimus on Cyprus. Then John Mark quit on us. And then I was driven out of Antioch. I was driven out of Iconium. And then uh, they they tried to worship me in Lystra. And after they tried to worship me in Lystra, then they tried to kill me and execute me by stoning. There was a lot of problems in this trip. But the door of faith was open to the Gentiles. Listen, one of the things I just love about Paul and Barnabas here is that they were unstoppable, were they not? Friends, what's it going to take to stop you? What's it going to take for you to back down from doing God's will? And Paul and Barnabas endured a lot. What will it take for you? Will it take some uh, adversity? Will it take the siren call of some success or, or offer of privilege or whatever else it might be in your life? I want to give it to you just straightforward as a very direct challenge. What would it take for you to turn your back on Jesus Christ and following him? I tell you, when I want you to think about that, I want you to think that not only did nothing stop Paul and Barnabas, but most pointedly, nothing stopped Jesus from doing God's will on our behalf. You see, the last thing I want to do here is leave you self-focused and introspective. Because when you think about being unstoppable, I don't want you to primarily think about how uh, Paul and Barnabas were unstoppable or about how you should be unstoppable. What I want you to primarily think about is how Jesus Christ could not be stopped from accomplishing your salvation. That Jesus Christ could not be turned away from doing his great work on the cross. Because when he hung on the cross, he bore all the shame, all the guilt, all the penalty that your sin deserved. And as much as I do, I want you to take an honest look at your life and determine it and measure it and all that. But don't stay with your eyes on yourself. You put your eyes on Jesus Christ and all that he's done for you. It's because he would not be stopped 
that you and I are rescued from all of our sin, from all of our shame. It's because he could not be stopped that there's forgiveness in him. So ladies and gentlemen, I I want to present to you not just the story about what Paul and Barnabas did. I want to present to you the story of what they preached. And their preaching was that salvation and rescue is in Jesus Christ. Put your eyes, put your art on him. He, he is the unstoppable one. And the good news is, he lives in you, right? Do you believe of this unstoppable Jesus? This one who could not be deterred by difficulty and who persevered through difficulty. That Jesus lives in you. And that's what we want to recognize here this morning. So let's pray and thank God for it right now.